Hello, and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn Podcast. The podcast where we, two book nerds, talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. Two warnings. This podcast uses barnyard language. Why limit ourselves to only nice words? Some things warrant not-so-nice words. Also, spoiler warning. We will be talking about the endings of both book and movie, so prepare yourself. Okay. Let's get into it. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Special guest. will edify. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Special guest. Burn Kelly gonna talk, so you better damn well listen. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Pages and Popcorn Podcast, the podcast where, as you know, we talk about movies based on books with our rotating cast of exciting characters who join me in the studio from the benefit of their own couches and homes and places all over the world. Today, I, your host, Kalia, am joined with Heather Kromke. Oh, hi, Heather. How are you? I'm good. You might recognize Heather's voice if you listen to our Summer Watch series. She was a regular as we dissected, debated, discussed, and were dismayed by, how's that for off the cuff, the (laughs) Netflix show Shadow and Bone, which was based on the book Shadow and Bone, which Heather read after watching the show. So at some point, not in this episode, I'll have to have you tell me what you thought about that because yeah. Anyways, but today we are here to discuss Big Fish, the 1998 novel, the 2003 movie, Big Fish, in just a second. Real fast first, just a reminder that you can reach us at pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com. Send us your thoughts and opinions and feedback. Please like and share and support us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all those places. Also on TikTok now. I am on TikTok and I talk on TikTok because that's what you do on TikTok is you talk. Some of you dance. I don't dance, but I do talk on TikTok about books. I talk about these books. I talk about other books. I actually talk about sundresses and weird politics and stuff too. There's stuff on my TikTok is all I'm saying. And you can find that information on our website, which is kmmamedia.com. And there's a tab right up there at top for pages and popcorn podcast, which is what you're listening to today. So Thank you for that. And last but not least, we have two ways that you can support us financially if you are so inclined. One is Patreon. You probably know about Patreon. And the other is buy me a coffee, which is weird, but that's what it's called. So we're going to go with it. And you can buy one coffee or five coffees or 10 coffees or two coffees. And it's basically an X dollar donation every time you quote unquote buy that coffee. And that money helps me continue to pay for the show, pay for the equipment for the show, pay for the website for the show. I don't actually get paid for the show, (laughs) but it keeps the show happening. Um, (laughs) This is not a money-making thing, but it is a fun thing. And any any financial help you want to toss our way is greatly appreciated, like I said, for those websites and such things. So that is it for my exciting intro. So Heather and I are going to be talking about Big Fish. And as you know, I'm going to be doing a recap. This book was very short. My recap is very long. And here we go. 
Big Fish, a novel of mythic proportions, is the 1998 novel by Daniel Wallace. William's father, Edward, is dying of cancer. In trying to come to terms with this and to try to understand his father, who was often absent and always avoided real talk on emotional subjects, choosing instead to tell jokes or tall tales, William tries to recreate his father's life story. So there are a lot of tall tales. Edward, Father Edward, born during a drought in Ashland, Alabama, at precisely the same time as a colossal thunderstorm erupts. Growing up, Edward had a way with animals. It seemed like he could communicate with them and they followed him around. When Edward was nine, a huge snowstorm blanketed Alabama and buried his house. So he slept in a tree and then walked to school. He walked by a man frozen in a block of ice. And then Edward grows so quickly that his bones can't keep up. He's confined to bed. He uses his time to read every single book in his hometown. This is the kind of tall tales that you can come to expect in this book. Back in the present, William jumps forward in time to describe his father's death. Take one. Dr. Bennett, the trusted family doctor, comes out of the guest room and says that there's nothing he can do. William and his mother, Sandra, have been expecting this. Edward's been ill for some time. Ilum remembers that his father has been mostly absent as he's traveled so much for work. Each time, Edward would quickly become frustrated when he was home and then always yearn to be back on the road. So back in the present, William goes into the guest room and Edward says that he feels bad for missing a lot of Williams' life. Edward explains that he wanted to be a great man, a big fish in a big pond. Edward starts to tell William about a two-headed lady, but William cuts him off saying he doesn't want to hear this story again. Edward quips that he's actually talking about the two-headed lady's sister. William is immediately drawn into the story. William switches back to narrating Edward's earlier life. Another tall tale. Edward is relaxing by the river. He sees a beautiful river girl bathing in the water and a snake is swimming towards her. So Edward jumps in to grab it and then he turns around and the river girl can put her clothes on. It's a little bit of modesty and he turns back. She's disappeared and the snake has turned her into a stick. One of William's favorite stories about Edward's youth is the story of Carl the Giant. Carl, a strapping young man, has an immense appetite. When Carl is 14 and finds his way to Ashland, starts eating everything in sight. Edward seeks out Carl to resolve the situation, and Carl is menacing at first, but soon starts crying, explaining that he was always hungry. Edward promises to teach him how to cook and farm so he doesn't have to steal from others. Carl ends up becoming one of the most successful farmers in the state. One day there's a flood, buries half the town under a lake. There's a giant catfish. Edward goes swimming in one of those catfish and gets pulled underwater and he sees all the people whose houses were flooding living normal lives with little air bubbles under the lake. Another story, Edward is now 17. He decides to leave town. He must first pass through the place that has no name where many people get stuck, unable to move forward. The weather grows ominously gloomy as Edward approaches his town. It's a barren place where disfigured people with missing fingers wander around looking lost. An old man greets Edward and shows him around. Edward notices that the air is damp, and the old man explains that the dampness is the residue of people's forgotten dreams. Suddenly, a fierce dog, named Dog, emerges and heads for Edward. The old man explains that Dog is a sort of gatekeeper as he instructs a terrified Edward, put out his hand. Dog stops growling, nuzzles Edward's hand. The old man says, oh, he's disappointed, but he whisks Edward off to the good food cafe. A man even older than this old man warns Edward not to face Dog again. People start crowding around Edward, urging him to stay. Slightly the back off, Dog is approaching. Edward leaps past Dog and runs out of the place that had no name. The sky brightens and Edward and Dog run alongside one another. They reach a lake and Dog nuzzles Edward, does not bite his fingers off as punishment for trying to run away because apparently Edward was destined to run away. And then the dog leaves him. Edward sees River Girl waving at him and on he goes. 
Then he is robbed, beaten, and left for dead by a pair of thugs, but he walks on. He's ready for whatever comes to him. He arrives in a country store run by an old man and his family. They try to help Edward heal from his wounds, but Edward is too proud, so first he must sweep and mop and clean in order to earn his keep and he almost dies trying to do this and as he's dying and they're in their arms he says advertise well he doesn't actually die and his advertise idea saves the little town store and everybody's happy and hooray for edward okay now edward's gonna go off to college edward meets an old lady she explains that some boy stole her glass eye so edward vows to return it he finds the boys. They are part of some little group. They like to steal this eye and they trade it back and forth. And it's like this weird little fraternity hazing ritual. Anyways, they're basically a gang. And so Edward tries to join and the gang leader says, okay, but you have to keep track of this eye overnight and be careful because if you look into it, it'll tell you when you die and it's all spooky and scary. And Edward's like, yeah, 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 sure, sure, sure. I'll, I'll hold on to the eye for a night. Uh-huh. Wink, wink. And the guy's like, cool, cool, cool. And if you don't bring it back tomorrow, we'll take your eye. Uh-oh. So now Edward's a little nervous. What is he going to do? What is he going to do? He promised the old lady. The next morning, he comes to the barn. He says, I have the eye. It's with me. It's in the head of the old lady. It's not just her head. He's brought the whole old lady along. And there she is. And she stares at all the boys. And they run away terrified. And Edward begins his studies at the college. Okay, now we're back to William once again. It's Edward's death, take two. Again, the doctor comes out of the guest room. Again, he says there's nothing he can do. Again, Edward and his mother are resigned. In the guest room, William asks Edward if he believes in God. Edward deflects with a joke. William is frustrated. He just wants Edward to be straight with him for once. Edward says he doesn't know what he thinks about God. He'd rather share a joke than a bunch of doubts. William resumes narrating Edward's life, now turning to Edward's courtship with his mother, Sandra. All the boys wanted Sandra, and there was even a gang leader named Don Price who'd proposed to her, but she hadn't really given him an answer yet, and she goes out with Edward anyway. Edward woos Sandra by being himself, and then they fall in love. One night, Don chases Edward and Sandra down on a road on a car outside of town, and Edward tries to talk Don off the edge because apparently he's been drinking, but Don won't have it, and he starts a fight, and he fights Edward instead, and of course, Edward wins the fight because it's Edward, and uh, then Sandra kisses Edward's bloody face, and then they elope, and they go to meet Sandra's senile parents, who we never hear from again, and then they settle down to live their lives. Edward faces three labors in Alabama. His first labor is cleaning out animal cages in a veterinary office. His second labor is working as a lingerie clerk in a department store where he has to convince a particularly nasty customer that men can be good lingerie sales assistants. His third labor involves a wild hell dog that's terrorizing the town. One night, Edward sees a toddler wander into the dog's path, but he steps between them and he kills the dog, pulling out its heart with his bare hands. Edward then becomes a sailor in the war and his ship is struck by a torpedo and he almost drowns, but the river girl emerges and leads him to safety. William jumps back to Edward's death, take three. William implores Edward to tell him just one story about his youth that's not fabricated, but Edward explains that his stories are metaphorical before reciting yet another joke and William leaves the room in frustration. William switches back to narrating Edward's life around the time that William was born. Edward was enraptured with baby William, and he made a list of virtues that he wants his boy to embody. Edward teaches William to play catch and takes him on picnics, but he's soon drawn away by the lure of the road, even though he loves William and Sandra. 
Edward returns home to make cameo appearances in William's life and even saves his life twice. There's the story about the time Edward climbed on the roof to look at the view and he fell and Edward pretended that he died as a joke. And William reflects this is how Edward wants to be remembered as a man who just makes people laugh. William acknowledges that Edward's greatest power is his ability to make his son laugh. Then Edward tells William about a dream he had in it. People crowd around the house like pilgrims camping outside in tents waiting for Edward to die. And William goes outside to ask them to please move along. And an old man explains they've come to thank Edward for being all the things that he was to them. And he lended them money and he made them laugh. And William finally understands that these people are his father. His father is the collection of stories and anecdotes. He goes back into the house. He tells himself a joke. William narrates another episode of Edward's life where Edward is around 40. Edward, very successful. Life is growing strained at home. He and his wife almost get a divorce, but, but then they don't. And then as he's driving around, Edward finds a town called Spectre and decides to buy the whole thing because it's so beautiful and quaint and beautiful and perfect and wonderful and beautiful. And he just has to own it in order to control it and save it from itself. Edward there at this little town meets a girl named Jenny Hill, who at first does not want to sell her house to him, but she eventually does because of course she does because it's Edward and they fall in love. And Edward visits Jenny sporadically and she spends her life sitting at her window, always waiting for him. And eventually a swamp surrounds her home and soon all that anybody can see are her yellow glowing eyes from deep within the swamp filled with sadness. So anyways, Edward returns home. He explains that he has cancer. He moves into the guest room. He begins swimming every day. As Edward's condition deteriorates, the swimming pool grows swampy. One day while swimming, Edward has a stroke and William fishes him out and then prays for Edward to wake up and tell just one more joke. William narrates his father's death for a fourth and final time. Edward is on life support at the hospital. William is remembering one of his father's favorite jokes about a man who buys a suit that's too big and he can't tell it as well as Edward can. And suddenly William is crying and then Edward wakes up briefly and says he's worried about William. He's tried to be a good father and teach William things and William tells Edward not to worry and he begins reciting the joke about the man in the suit and Edward closes his eyes and then suddenly Edward smiles and says, hey, it's time for one last adventure, yo. So William smuggles Edward out of the hospital. They drive to the river. Edward pours water on himself. William carries Edward to the water's edge. And suddenly Edward is transformed into a big fish. Edward swims off into the distance, teeming with life to go and be epic once more. The end. Five years later, they made a movie. Big Fish is the 2003 American fantasy comedy drama film directed by Tim Burton and based on that novel, which we just talked about. The film stars Ewan McGregor, Albert Finney, Bill Crudup, Jessica Lange, Helena Bottom Carter, Alison Lohman, and a bunch of other people. Oh, including Steve Buscemi and Danny DeVito. <laughs> Here we go. At Will Bloom's wedding party in the year 2000, his father Edward is recalling the day that William was born and telling this toast, and he's claiming that he caught an enormous, an enormous catfish using his wedding ring as bait. Will, having heard these stories all his life, believes them to be lies, and he throws a hissy fit about not being the center of attention. He misses the whole point of toasts at weddings. He's a total dick to his new bride, and then his voiceover tells us that this was the last time he talked to his dad for three years. Apparently, we're supposed to sympathize. I don't. <laughs> 
Three years later, it's 2003 and Daddy Edward has cancer. So Will and his wife, Josephine, who is both pregnant and French, return to the town of Ashton, Alabama to spend time with him. During the plane ride, Will recalls the story of Edward's childhood encounter with a witch. He and some other boys in town, including Don Price, went to her house at night to try to goad each other into doing something foolish and manly. Full of bravado and not willing to back down, Edward went up to her house and then brought her back down to the boys with her spooky glass eye and she showed each of the boys how they would die. Edward, in spite of his illness, continues to tell the story of his life to Will and also to Josephine. He claims to have once been bedridden for three years due to his rapid growth spurts. He then became a locally famous sportsman, all-around town hero, rescuing dogs from fires, etc., before being driven by his ambition to leave his hometown. We also see shots of Don Price looking jealous as Edward looks awesome. But right before he leaves town, he has to rescue the town from a big giant who's been eating the sheep and apparently a dog, all due to his all-consuming hunger. Like the book, Edward offers himself up as a male, but the giant refuses. He's just so hungry. Edward promises to show him big cities with all-you-can-eat buffets, and so they decide to leave town together. Edward and Giant Carl find a fork in the road and travel down separate paths, promising to meet up again. Edward follows the path through a swamp and discovers a secret town inspector, the cheery, barefoot, and brainwashed-looking locals, claiming that he has been expected. There, he befriends Ashton poet Norther Winslow and the mayor's 10-year-old daughter, Jenny. 10 years old! Put a pin in it! Despite them stealing his shoes and trying to convince him to stay, Edward realizes how messed up this town is and he bails. He says it's because he's just not ready to settle down yet with 10-year-old Jenny, but he does promise that he will return. Edward and Carl reunite on the path and then they visit the circus, where Edward falls in love at first sight with a beautiful young woman. Carl and Edward get, quote, jobs. Jobs is in quotes because Carl signs a contract after admitting that he doesn't understand the term involuntary servitude and it's never spoken of again. It's really creepy. And Edward is getting paid in information. See, the ringmaster, Amos, who's also a werewolf, knows who the girl Edward is in love with. And so he will tell Edward one detail about her at the end of every month. Like, she likes music. It's totally worth a month's worth of work. Totally. Three years later, Edward who's now discovered that Amos is secretly this werewolf and is attacked by him, avoids getting shot with a silver bullet or mauled by the werewolf by playing fetch with him. And then Amos turns back into a human and in gratitude, he reveals the woman's name to be Sandra Templeton and that she attends Auburn University. So off Edward goes to Auburn and he stalks Sandra. He leaves her notes. He writes stuff in the sky. He tells her on their very first meeting that he loves her. And she's like, I don't know you. And he's like, who cares? You're going to marry me. And she's like, uh, actually, I'm engaged. But Edward doesn't care. He's going to steal her away from whoever she's engaged to. And of course, it's Don Price. As a romantic gesture to win her, he plants thousands of daffodils outside of her sorority house bedroom. It's very pretty. Don shows up and he beats Edward up because she belongs to me. And then this makes Sandra break off their engagement. And not long after, Don dies of a heart attack while on the toilet looking at Playboy because we hate him for some reason. Shortly after, Edward is drafted into the army and then sent to fight in the Korean War. He parachutes into the middle of a North Korean military show, steals important documents, and convinces the Siamese twins who are performing there to help him get home in exchange for making them celebrities. Of course, the army thinks he's dead for a while, so Sandra's very, very happy when he returns home. And upon returning home, Edward becomes a traveling salesman and crosses path with Winslow. You know, that poet guy who finally also got out of the town of Spectre? Anyways, he helps Winslow 
rob a bank that actually has no money and then inspires Winslow to go work on Wall Street because that's what every good poet should go do. And Winslow becomes a wealthy broker and repays Edward with $10,000, which Edward uses to obtain his dream home. In the present, Will, you remember him? We're back in the present. This guy exists. He investigates the truth behind his father's tales by going through his private papers and he finds a bill, a deed, something. It says Jenny. So he goes to the town of Spectre. He meets up with this older Jenny who explains that Edward rescued the town from bankruptcy by buying it at an auction and rebuilt it with the help from his friends from the circus and from his help friend Winslow with all of his money. Anyways, Will assumes that Jenny and his father are having an affair, but she reveals that although she loved Edward, he always remained faithful to Sandra. Will returns home and learns that Edward has had a stroke, and then he stays with him in the hospital. Edward wakes up, but unable to speak much, explains the entire setting is what he saw in the witch's eye. Will starts to believe him as he becomes afraid, but he calms him by narrating what he always guessed Edward saw in the eye. Though struggling, Will tells his father of their imagined daring escape from the hospital to a nearby river where everyone from Edward's past is there to see him off. Will carries Edward through the joyful crowd into the river where Edward transforms into a giant catfish and swims away. Through telling the story, Will learns to forgive his father who dies satisfied with his life. At the funeral, Will and Josephine are surprised and all the people from Edward's stories come to the service, although each of them is slightly less fantastical than described. He asks for their accounts of Edward's stories and they fantasize his acts in return. Years later, Will passes on Edward's stories to his own son, helping his father become immortal. The end. As I get some more oxygen. <laughs> Breathing is overrated. <laughs> Unless you're a fish. Unless you're fish. This movie came out when I was in my early 20s and I was like, oh, a Tim Burton movie. And then I didn't go see it. And then at some point I saw the book somewhere and I was like, oh, I think they made a movie based on that book, but I didn't read it. And then you and I were trying to decide a book and movie combo for us to do. And you wanted to do fantasy. And I'd already promised Stardust to Jennifer, which by the way, listeners, we're going to be doing Stardust with Jennifer in not too long from now. And so I was looking at a list and this was on the list. And my memory says that the conversation went like this, Kalia reading themes down the list, name of thing, name of thing, name of thing, big fish, Heather. Oh, I loved big fish. Kalia. Oh, okay. I've never seen it. Heather. Oh yeah. It's so good. Kalia. Oh, okay. Let's do it. That was the end of their friendship. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> really sound like that? No. I just have to differentiate your voice from my voice when I'm mimicking you. Yes. How, how now, did you actually come to this book and movie? <laughs> no, so that was, yeah, what we had, that was the conversation we had. It's really funny though, because I had not watched this movie in over 10 years. Mm-hmm. And rewatching it after reading the book, being at a different place in my life, there was a lot more that I did see or didn't see or had inferred before, but didn't this time. And so it was a really neat experience for me because it is very different than when I saw it previously. Yeah. So it was, it was different. It was, yeah. I mean, 2003, so that's almost 20 years ago when this movie came out. 
and seeing it 10 years ago, I mean, our, our lives changed dramatically every 10 years. Yeah. Like we both have children who are yours is nine. Mine's almost nine. So yeah, 10 years ago, life was different. Um, <laughs> it was pre-children, you know, we have all these, these, you know, pre-COVID moments, but now we were that talking pre-children, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And it's very different. Okay. Okay. <laughs> So I feel like we have to, we have to say, there's a few things we have to say. And one thing really is about Tim Burton, but before we get to the big fish of Tim Burton, I just want to talk specifically about the book because I, as I read this book, I thought I would never think to want to adapt this book because the way the book is written, it's written in these episodic little stories. Some of the little tall tales are like a couple of paragraphs. Some of them are one, you know, just half a chapter's worth. Some of them are longer. It flows. This is like Ulysses and the Odyssey. And like, there's allusions to Hercules. This is, this is literary fairy tale magic. It's not really magical realism. It's, it's, you know, slightly different because it's, it's mythic, right? It's a bunch of stories. It feels like somebody telling stories. It feels like something I was like, I could totally have read this to my child. Like, this is very sweet. And then, but to make it into a movie seems like very ambitious. And I read that they, they wanted to start making this into a movie like very soon after it was published. It was, they bought the rights like right away. And I just have to say like that, that's an element of, that's something, that's something to take something like. Did you also know that it was originally Steven Spielberg who was going to produce? Yes. I read that too. And then he went on to do um, catch me if you can instead. And I, it, I think it would have been a very different movie if it had been Steven Spielberg and not Tim Burton. But it had big names interested in it, mm-hmm. which like you said, it it was not because there's certain books and movies or that are turned into movies that you you know it can be a good movie just based on the book, but because there's enough to it. This one, it just seemed hard how they could flush it out into a movie. Right. And apparently the way they did that was not telling any of the stories that were actually in the book and recreating out of whole cloth a bunch of other stuff. Right. <laughs> la la la. Um, but I feel like it really resonates the idea of like trying to connect with your parent and you know, what is real and what isn't real. And so I want to talk about some of the themes. I think the book did a better job of having more interesting themes to chew on. So that's kind of where I want to start, but then I know we'll talk about the movie and the changes that were made and stuff. So obviously the metaphorical big fish, you know, being a big fish in a small pond and, you know, what does that really mean? You know, you take up more space, right? If you are the big fish in the little pond, everybody knows you, you're the focus. And again, you physically just take up more space, but I think that it's interesting because he wasn't satisfied being the big fish. He wanted to seek an even bigger pond so that he could continue to grow. And so I thought that is, that's a good lesson that, you know, not being satisfied with where you are, but continuing to grow and stretch yourself is really good. Uh, Pushing past your comfort zone and moving forward. So right off the bat, I was like, yeah, that's cool. Cool. Cool we have the themes of like ambition and courage and personal fulfillment in the book specifically the tales are what's helping edward trans you know transform 
through all these personal challenges. So like, it's those same basic things, growing up, leaving home, finding works, finding love, starting a family, all of these things, but they're all through magical adversaries that he has to conquer as he makes his way in the world. So they're all very metaphorical things. And it's his, it's his courage that is the thing that helps him go. So one of the first, well, not the first, but one of the major things that got left out of the movie is that there's not the place where people get stuck. Right. And I love the place where people got stuck because you have this idea that he's, he's full of potential. The whole town is like, you're great. Go out and seek your fortune. And that can be a lot of pressure. There's a lot of stuff on social media nowadays about how gifted children from the eighties and the early nineties are really struggling now because they had all these expectations. And at the same time, things weren't hard for them. And it's like this double whammy for when you get into the world. And then what is expected of you is different and it is hard. And you're not used to having to work in that certain way, but also you've had this unrealized set of potential. Everybody's expected you to do so much. So then you, you know, there's imposter sister, all of this kind of stuff. And as we're hitting our forties right now, I feel like that is definitely a, a theme that we're dealing with. And so the idea that there's this physical place where you could get stuck and not continue, and you have this poet who can't seem to finish his poem, you know, all of this stuff. I thought that was just, it was a beautiful allegory for it. And it might be a little bonk bonk on the head, but I liked it. Did you like that part? I, did. I felt that it, there's such a transition after high school for so many people of, okay, I've accomplished this. Now what? And that, that idea of being lost in that time period. And so even though he knew he wanted to do more, he had to still go through that step. You know, it's something everyone has to go through and it's part of just part of your journey, you know, yeah. is that, that, confidence that you know you want more Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think in a way it kind of weeds out those in life that at that point decide I'll take whatever comes my way I'm not going to fight it what's going to happen happens right and I felt that his journey through there was more the you know showing his confidence that this isn't what I'm destined for and pushing beyond it Mm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. So and I, the, did, I did enjoy that. And the courage to go, because one of the things that is happening there, they're like, you could try, but you could just stay here. It's safe here. This is nice. Why would you want to pull your fingers? Yeah, exactly. That's if you go best. someone, could, yeah, which is the whole thing. I would be scared too. If like, you didn't know if the thing was going to bite your fingers or not, but he, he was like, no, I'm going to be brave. And I'm going to, I don't want to settle. You know, it's along the themes, like there's always, and I don't know what it's called. Perhaps you do. Where like you have to put your hand in the box. <laughs> Dune. <laughs> right? And you have to just wait. And it, you have to have enough courage to put your hand in the box. But it it might bite you. It might do something. But it might not. But that that concept of the unknown. Fear is the mind killer. <laughs> it is. It yes. is. Right. right. So and the fear of the unknown is the biggest fear of all. Right. And so what's on the other side of this town? Oh, none of these people know because they won't go because it's too scary. And- Obviously there's been people that have come and gone mm-hmm. to the town. So it's, it's a really hard thing because it really is like, he's putting a 
physical metaphor to an emotional state of mind. Yeah. And I think that a lot of that has to do with where the book was set, you know, like in the old South where there's these little quaint towns, which why would you leave? You know, who, who needs the big city? We don't need those fancy things. So it's definitely like the way the author puts a physicality to that notion. I really enjoyed that. Right. And the fact that then Edward be- went on to become a traveling salesman who always, never yes, never settled, always traveling, always going somewhere else. That's, you know, streak of adventurism. There were several times throughout the book that it also struck me of, in a way, like it made me sad because he never had a goal. There was never an end. And so that continuous searching mm-hmm. to me just sounded really sad. Yeah, I think that it's not as obvious, but I definitely feel like for every good aspect of Edward's uh, personality and this this courage and this ambition, there is a, a the flip of the coin the other side, which is like you're saying, there's the wanderlust because he can't be happy. There's the courage to be brave and face down this or face down these physical manifestations, but emotional courage isn't there, you know, like, like, so there's, and there's a counterpart. Exactly. That is good. And for me, like I had made a note, was it his insecurities that made him tell these tall tales or was it his ego? Like, it's hard to know Mm -hmm. which, which one it is of those two counterpart emotions or or personality traits because again like the other note was like you know he found the love of his life and he had everything he wanted and then he cheated on her and he went and bought a town because he didn't have everything that he wanted because you know and the town i know we're skipping a little bit but the town that he bought was like this moment of time he got there and he was like oh my gosh time hasn't touched this town it's pristine and it's protected and so i'm going to protect it so that nothing changes which is exactly what he was trying to get away from at the beginning was this town and the feeling of so yeah i definitely feel like that's just it's not an accident and then that's where he was trying he had jenny and you know as i i noted earlier he he there was definitely an affair in the book in the book he and jenny were an item he he picked her up and took her to a house in town he had a kept woman yeah who waited for him to come back each time whereas sandra we never felt that she missed him when he was gone yeah and so they humanized the the mistress Mm -hmm. in the situation so it was i had made a note i was like why would his mom put up with that like this wandering salesman who just tells tall tales and always wants to leave. I, I don't know. And the one child, which I mean, not obvious. You and I both only have one child for, you know, our reasons. And a lot of people choose that. But in this time, it's a little weird that there was, you know, only one child. Um, and even the, the author even says that his parents almost got divorced, but didn't. And I'm just like, this book really lacked the female perspective. <laughs> and, I, and I'm not saying that every book has to have equal footing or should, you know, whatever. I, I don't, don't mistake this as a feminist rant. It's not, it's just, this character was not flushed out at all. And it felt jarring. And I know it was about a man and his father, but seriously, mom was important. There was a lack. Yeah. yeah there was a lack of that mother role and the wife role, because if you're talking of a family dynamic, Mm-hmm. 
it was very, I felt intentional that she was left out. Yes. It also made me feel like, you know, as children, um, sometimes you take for granted the parent that's there all the time and you really only focus your love and desire or whatever on the parent that's not around. It, little funny anecdote. My mom was a stay at home mother when my sisters were younger and my dad did, he actually traveled a lot overseas and stuff. And I remember one time he was coming home and my little sister, Kristen was so excited. Daddy's coming, daddy's coming. And my mom said, do you get this excited when, you know, I'm going to come home. And Kristen said, it's dad though. You're just the guy that feeds us, (laughs) which I'm, you know, my mother was thrilled to hear. And it's a, it's a joke now, but that idea though, that you take for granted. So the fact that William the child, the, the boy took his mother for granted, isn't surprising, but since it, it was like never acknowledged even that he had any, any kind of relationship with his mother at all is, right. is just, it, it, it was disappointing. So some of the other themes we have are truth and myth and immortality. Okay. Cause we have this, you know, what's true and what's not true. And there's always, there's like a little bit of truth in these mythological tall tales that he's telling, which it's fine that, you know, that's, that's kind of what a tall tale is, right? It, it's, you know, it's an exaggerated story, but in a way that makes you know that it's exaggerated. Um, I was trying to explain this book to my daughter and I was like, well, you know, like Paul Bunyan and they say that he walked through the, 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 you know, the Western side of the U S and he dragged his axe behind him. And then that made the grand Canyon. That's where we get the grand Canyon is Paul Bunyan's axe. Well, obviously not, but that's so ridiculous that you would never think, oh yeah, there was a guy that big, right? Of course, that doesn't make any sense. Now, Edward's stories though, some of them are like, you could maybe see happening, like punching the dog and stealing its, its heart right out of its body or, you know, catching the fish or whatever. But then you have the other things like going down underwater and seeing a bunch of people like living their normal lives with little air bubbles. So it's just, but I I see the point. It's like, at some point, if somebody's always lying, if they are never telling you a straight answer, it can make it hard to trust anything that they say, which I think is the frustration. The fact that he's always joking, there's either jokes or stories. So there's nothing authentic ever. Mm -hmm. And I think that can happen too with a lot of people with sarcasm yeah is that if it's if you're sarcastic all the time and then you're actually serious and then you get upset that somebody's mad because they didn't get your intention well but if you're always sarcastic then they're not like that's on you as a person not those around you Mm -hmm. and so it becomes a thing of okay if you're going to constantly tell jokes and tell tales then i think it's fair that your son doesn't believe any of it right you know like you've never shown him that authentic part of you then it just goes to show that like yeah so many kids grow up not knowing if what their parents have told them is true once they enter the real world right and we do have a sense a sort of sense of like family legends and whether or not they're apocryphal or real and stuff it's just that normally like the family legends are could be real there's the story of how my parents met and maybe like some of it's gotten exaggerated over time, but nobody was wrestling an alligator or rescuing a damsel from a castle in the story. It's just some of the details might not be exactly the same way they really were, you know? And I think that's a difference of embellishment mm-hmm. versus unrealistic. Right. 
And so it, it can be a fine line, I think. And this one, it just, they definitely, he just went ahead and took it all the way. All the way, always. One of the reviews that I read, so I can't claim credit for this, although I wish I had thought of it, was he's not the boy who cried wolf. He's the man who cried fish. <laughs> <laughs> that is good one. Yeah, yeah. I think too, like it, it's one of those that um, the big fish that got away, right? Mm-hmm. That that fishing story of always, well, it was this big. So I love that the big fish concept, it's one, the big fish in the small pond, but it's also the stories that are told and each time they're told, they get grander. Yes. And so I think it has that double metaphor to it that really it was a good choice. Yeah, no, it was a really good motif for sure. The father, his, I think one of his points was like, you're not going to remember all these little things. You're going to remember my story. So I'm going to tell you the same stories over and over again so that you remember them because that's how I'm going to live on, be immortal through my stories, blah, blah, blah. And I, I've got a lot of opinions about that. And we will definitely talk about that kind of idea multiple times. But one thing specifically, since we're here in the book, is that the actions that the father took some of them were just as epic as he saved his son's life twice, twice. He saved his son. That's an action. Those didn't need to be embellished stories. They were just beautiful moments of family love, you know, and we could, but they get overshadowed because the father doesn't see these actions as important. It's the story of this pretend thing and all of his stories are either about before the son was born or his adventures away from home. He doesn't have stories about their regular life, right? And I thought that that's really interesting too. And it just goes to show, you know, where we put our emphasis in. If your emphasis is showing your love or acting out your love or talking about yourself in this, you know, I used to be so epic kind of way. I That was the ego that I kept feeling that just kind of oozed into it. And when he talked about saving his life, son's life twice, like it was more an accomplishment than a deed. I think that it was the son who actually talked about my father saved my life twice. And that's one of the main things that, but that was something that was important to the son. Yes. That's what I'm saying. Okay. So the son in both times, when he's talking about, he saved my life twice that I know of. And it's, this is the ice part of the story is mm-hmm. Edward talking about his father. I did this and he saved my life. He saved my life. A lot of the other parts of this is just about his father. He, 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 he. And so we get the, the ego part. And I totally understand what you're saying. And I support your, your assertion there about the ego but it is interesting that it is the son telling, which to me made the father more likable in the book because the story was being filtered through the son. Whereas the movie, uh, the father's stories were told in the first person and then we were seeing them acted out. And so because it was from that person without the filter, I didn't like him as much. That felt way more egocentric than in the book where I was like, okay, so he's told these stories and now the son is putting them into context and trying to figure them out. And we do have the sense of I when we have the part about his dad saving his life. But again, the important thing was to the son was my dad saved my life. And these are those stories that got a total of four pages in this book. 
Right. Which was a long chapter for the book. It was considerably, but you know, um, all of these other stories, the stories that my father chose to talk about the stories of his life that he would tell you wouldn't include the times that he saved my life, which I think is sad and interesting. Yeah. The book was sad. It was, I finished it. And then I just kind of sat there and was like, I felt differently after reading the book and my memories of the movie, Mm -hmm. because it's one of those, again, it all depends on what order you see things in. And so I had a feeling that since you read the book and then watched the movie, whereas I watched the movie, read the book, watched the movie, I finished the book and I was just like, that dad was a jerk. Like (laughs) all he did was run away from his family. Like it just, you know, and so it took a lot of reflection to, to realize what his motives were for those actions and, you know, trying to understand that. And then watching the movie again, it helped me put it in perspective. Because when I first finished the book, like I said, I was like, God, that dad was a jerk. Who'd want a dad like that? But then watching the movie again and processing kind of why he told the stories, it helped me appreciate that a little bit more. Still a jerk, but still a jerk, but not not as I think he's a tragic character. Yeah, he was tragic. And right. Not to say that that excuses bad behavior, but you can feel empathy for someone who's acting in a bad way, as opposed to feeling just hatred for them. If like, they're just choosing to be a dick. Right. Well, and especially because like you said, in the book, the, the theme of his, the first, you know, quarter third of his life living in this small town, being idolized by the townspeople, like you said, that's a heavy burden. And to go from that to then out into this huge world and feeling lost in that massive ocean, Mm -hmm. I mean, it really, that can damage a person. And I think that that's what I can now look at the book and see was that he was just, he was a damaged person Yeah, and he was doing the best he could without having, I mean, these stories were a way to hide his insecurities Mm -hmm. and then it, you know. That makes you think too, like, what have I done as a parent? <laughs> you know, ah. where do I hide my insecurities by glossing over certain aspects of your life, mm-hmm. right? And so it's it's kind of a really neat way to to have that retrospective versus current, right? So yeah, it was really for such a short book, it had a massive amount of content. Yes, yeah, and and it was very well written. I liked the writing style. I like that we have these allusions to like Greek mythological figures, you know, the labors of Hercules, the labors, even like the fact that it's also with the animals cleaning up the animals. I was like, oh, which if you've read your Greek, you'll get it. And if you don't, it still works. Right. So it works on levels, which I always appreciate in a writer that they're not drawing your attention to those Easter eggs and making you feel stupid if you don't pick them up. But like, I like the, I don't know if you've read Ulysses, I've read Yes. a good chunk of Ulysses because oh my god James Joyce but like that the bloom it's it's not an accident that his name is bloom you know what I mean and that he's this guy this you know the advertising especially with the advertising aspect of it I just thought that was just really really well done um and Odysseus you know obviously the epic quests and all of that stuff trying to get home and and whatnot in the book I feel like he died I feel like he died in the pool that's what I feel like. I feel like he died in the pool. He had a stroke and his son pulled him out and, and, you know, begged him to, to not die. 
and, and he did, and he died. That's, that's what I, you know, but he did, he died. And then the sons now creates that story of, and it's not how it's expected. Cause the other, we have basically like four deaths, right? And like the first three is like, the doctor comes out, he tells us this, we walk in. And some of the same sentences are even repeated. He's moved into the guest room. This is why my mother looks at me. Da, da, da. The doctor is this old. Here's a metaphor about how old the doctor is. Blah, blah, blah. Then I go in, we have a conversation. Sometimes the conversation is very frustrating. Sometimes the conversation almost gets somewhere, but it always leaves you a little bit unsatisfied. And then that's kind of like, and then it moves into some other story or some flashback or whatever. But when the pool thing happens, happens his you know his dad's out there and he finds him he pulls him out and he begs him to come back so it's completely unexpected it's not what he planned and I think that's kind of the point and then in order to make his you know to give his father quote-unquote the death he deserved and to live on the immortality then he kind of creates this story of taking him out of the hospital like that he made it through the night after the stroke at the hospital you know and like that they went on this epic adventure and he got to turn into a fish which is all the way back into the water. So that's that's where I think that he died. I don't know if if you think the same or somewhere else or if you I do. I do. I think too like the retelling of that final scene mm-hmm. plays into the tall tales. Mm-hmm. Cuz again, remember the fish gets a little bigger each time you tell the story. Mm-hmm. And so retelling that death scene the four times, it got a little bigger. And it, it felt like it was William's way of hashing out the story to be the right story to tell. The first yeah. three weren't the right story. Right. And so it was like he was embracing what, but then also understanding what his father had done. Mm-hmm. Because there was small truths to his stories, but because of the retelling, it became something different. Yeah. And so it, yeah, I feel that, yeah, it was the, when we decide to tell a story and then we put our spin on it I mean we're we we self-edit that's what we do and the more times you tell a story the more neural pathways that you bridge in your head and the farther away from the truth and the actual story I have so many stories that I will tell and now I just remember the story because I remember the words I don't remember the thing I just remember the story and then I'll pull out the story and sometimes I've told the story slightly differently. And then I go to tell the story and someone goes, wait a minute. And then I'm like, oh yeah. And then I just, uh-huh, that's exactly what I meant because you know, not that I part of how our brains work. I mean, exactly. I had a discussion actually with our children the other morning on the way to school about, you know, different places in California they visited and both of them didn't recall certain trips, but they recalled others. And it is one of those that usually the memories are attached. We actually discussed it, that it's usually something really positive or something really negative. You don't tend to remember the mundane. Mm -hmm. And it really resonated with this is that, yeah, none of the stories were about basic things. They were all grand, either super happy or super not. Like, Mm -hmm. that's just what we do with our memories. Yeah. And the more you've heard a story retold, the more you're going to remember it. Exactly. Oh, and then I'm sorry, just because it's further down in my notes, but the traveling salesman, the death of a salesman, again, Willie Loman, but this is, has a, has a better ending. Anyways. Yes. The book was really well-written is my point. Um, and I really, this is, this is, you know, this is a quote. So people mess things up, forget and remember all the wrong things. What's left is fiction. 
and I just I just liked it it's like the this is the poetry of a son's memories of his father and it's like yes 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 okay so I have more to say about the book but everything else I have to say about the book is very much tied into the movie so I want to talk to yeah I want to talk about the movie now so I'm just going to put it out there Mm-hmm. I thought Tim Burton was a great choice for this. Why? Because I feel that he can think outside of the box to tie things together. I mean, there was going to have to be a lot of filled in parts of a storyline because it was telling his dad's life story. So I think that some of the adaptions they did you know, like taking the story of the witch and making it while he was a child versus while he was in college. You know, there was a lot of things that, and obviously that was, you know, when they turned it into a script, there was a lot of that kind of stuff had to be done. I just don't know that if they had somebody who wasn't, I mean, Steven Spielberg is wonderful, but I don't think he's quite as creative in the fantasy sense, if that makes sense. Okay. It's so hard to parse because we we didn't see another filmmaker's interpretation, right? And we never really will. This film felt so Tim Burton-esque that it's it's almost impossible to imagine it in a different way. And I think that Tim Burton has a has has some shticks and has some stuff that he does, and he does them very well. I just feel like those are his things that he does very well. And so, okay, you kind of know almost exactly what you're gonna get with a Tim Burton film, I don't feel like he has range is not maybe the quite the right word, but I I definitely feel like there's something about it that if you like Tim Burton films, you'll probably like this film. And if you're kind of ambivalent towards Tim Burton films, or you need more in a film than just that it is a Tim Burton film, then this, like that part's not going to be the thing that's going to work for you for this, you know? Um, And that's, that's definitely more where I land. And I feel like he has made some movies that are really interesting and have these really cool visual things and that that um, demand the audience to think. And this one, I felt like he was really pulling his punches. I mean, I don't feel like we needed the sign that said, you know, jumping spiders and then see to see the jumping spider. You know, a lot of it just felt over. It felt like it was trying really hard to be a Tim Burton film. And I, I that's fine. I don't take nearly as much exception with that aspect of there's some other things that they changed in this film that I felt were not, not just changes that I personally wouldn't have made because that they're allowed to do that. But I feel like some of the changes they made changed the tone. And I don't like that. I I feel like that's not a fair adaptation when you're changing the tone so dramatically. And it's large. One of those was when he, by taking out the purgatory town, Mm-hmm. and putting inspector only i think that was the biggest one of those missed opportunities i get that he, they were showing specter that he was there too early like he showed up earlier than he was supposed to but i still think they could have made it two different towns yeah i agree and and especially because then he comes back and then it's almost then he was like too late except that he wasn't because he rescued it, but the town had to suffer for a bit because his timing was off. I, and then right. it was like, are we saying that he was supposed to go back there and be with Jenny? Is that what he thought? Because, but then he wasn't with Jenny. And also like, I'm sorry, she was 10 and it was weird and creepy. And like, everybody seemed to act like he was the weirdo for not wanting to hook up with this 10 year old. And then 
it just ugh, didn't I like. think what they were trying to go with that is that things happen in our life's timeline when they're supposed to it wasn't conveyed well you know because they they say you know people say that you know you'll meet people when you're supposed to when you need them in your life but really if you meet enough people you'll find the right people when you're supposed to right I, like it's yeah and she, whole life isn't written for you i'm not sure she met him when she was quote unquote supposed to like right. she didn't seem satisfied with the <laughs> The meeting at age 10 and then the meeting at age whatever later and and then him leaving her. I yeah. And and by making Spectre into this freaking brainwashed colony of barefoot weirdos who like have the freaking deliverance song playing on the banjo when he first shows up, it's just it just makes it unnecessarily odd for no reason. It didn't need to be right. odd. It could have been sweet and and so that's what I mean. Still trying to pull some of that like purgatory town where you're stuck, but it was like. But also, you're supposed to, to come back that. here, yeah, so, because that's why. And by making it to the same town, it just doesn't it doesn't work as so well. Gross. Yeah, it it can't work. I honestly, it started out so different. The very beginning of the book is like we're already we're pretty quickly in with the son. You know, he's like, this is my frustration with my father. I'm going to tell you about my dad. I'm going to tell you about me. And you're like, okay, yeah, dude, I understand. That sounds really frustrating and blah, blah, blah. At the start of the movie, it's a wedding. It's, we start off with this, the catfish story about, you know, the day I was born, blah, blah, blah. And like, it's his father telling the story and it starts off so beautiful. The father tells the story of the day he was born and then as a child and then like telling it to him as he's a little bit older and then telling it to him again. And now he's a grown up, and the father's telling the same story at his wedding. That's really freaking sweet. I'm sorry. It just is. And then the whole point of the story is about true love, which is a perfectly acceptable story to tell as a, at a wedding as part of your toast. And I know my bar might be low because at my wedding, my husband's mother got up and told a story about divorce and part of her toast. So my point is that this is a beautiful story. And what happens is our main character guy throws a fucking hissy fit and stomps outside and is like, how dare you tell a story about true love on my special day? Leaving his bride inside by herself so he can go outside and sulk that his dad told a beautiful story about true love. Dude, I can't even. I didn't like that guy from then on. I was like, nope, you suck. And I didn't like him until the very end. <laughs> like he <laughs> redeemed himself by telling the good story to his dad in the hospital. But other than that, I just found that character so annoying. <laughs> it definitely set the tone for the movie because, I mean, I think if it had done, been done the same way it was done in the book, the dad would have been really unlikable from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And the point was to feel for him, right? And so I think they had to find a way to make him feel almost like he was attacked just by telling the stories, right? So even though it made us dislike the son, it made us feel for the father. Yes. Whereas in the book, I didn't feel for the father until much later. Yeah. I, yeah. So I, I think they had to kind of do that. Well, switch. because they needed Ewan McGregor to be the son, because we spent so much time in the flashback that if we didn't yes. like that guy we wouldn't want to be in that care. flashback exactly so i and get it a lot of flashback but i think that you could have done it where you could feel 
complicated about this relationship and we don't have this is what i'm talking about with the tim burton thing at the beginning like trust the audience to be able to hold a complicated emotion like you don't have to paint it so severe you know and make it into this antagonistical thing because just somebody being a jerk and then being not a jerk at the end isn't character growth and so this character didn't really grow in that sense the book character grew even though it wasn't you know really him as much and the father our appreciation of the father grew in the movie we didn't have that as much also in the movie all the stories like i said are from the first person the dad is telling the story and it's you and mcgregor and we're like living in it and i feel like some of these tall tales work better as stories and not as good as visuals Okay. I, I think, yeah, I agree with that. I think the hardest part was making it more of a timeline because in the book, it kind of jumped around a little more like the stories it felt. Whereas this one for cinematic purposes needed to be like a chronological timeline. See, I felt like the movie jumped around way more than the book did. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. I, cause the book, I was feel like, okay, we got two parallel. We got him at home watching his dad die. And then we, we start off with his dad's birth and we start and we go and we're very clear. And then he's growing up and then he's going to college and then he's doing these things. Whereas in the movie, it felt we were moving back more. And because it wasn't as balanced, we spent so much time in flashback mm -hmm. and such little time in the present that it, and he was sometimes talking to one person and then we'd come back from the flashback and he'd be talking to somebody else or we would never see the end of that framing device which you kind of need more in movies but again like i feel like a lot of these stories work better as actual just stories like words on a page because then we get to imagine that or not imagine it because it's ridiculous and by making it a visual thing we have to have special effects and don't get me wrong the special effects were cool like they didn't use a lot of cgi it's a lot of forced perspective and some really cool stuff like the whole world standing still at one point that was a cool effect like there was cinematography some was really well done and like the lighting cues were like the past was like through this filter and then the present day has like these color palette that was really cool but also it was always like this close to the line of being ridiculously dumb looking. I'm sorry, but the werewolf and Danny DeVito scratching his face with his foot <laughs> was not okay. <laughs> but see, but that's the thing. I appreciate the Tim Burton-ness of it, whereas you don't. Yeah. And so it's very much because those moments were the ones that I laughed, right? Uh -huh. Those to me broke up the you know, the length of it. Like that's what those little things help in the movie, I think, not feel as heavy. Because the book was heavy. Those book moments took me out. I remember at one point in my notes, I wrote, I no longer care. Like <laughs> when it gets that silly, then there's no actual consequence. It everything's just and, and again, that was one of the things I noticed between watching it this time and when I watched it when I was younger is that now I wanted more. Whereas when I saw it originally, those moments were okay, right? Like it, the levity of it, I appreciated more when I saw it originally. Yeah. Now I did want that more serious story mm -hmm. that the book gave. And I think that perception, again, like I said, it just, because I'm in a different place in my life, I wanted that depth of that character development of the son and more of their 
their struggles to meet in the middle. Yeah. And I think that comes from my experiences of wanting that truthfulness and that honesty and that authenticness from my parents. I think I now know that that was something I was missing 20 years ago. It's definitely a different watch now than it was then. That's fair. And I might have different feelings if I watched it in my twenties versus watching it for the first time in my forties and being like, right, and going, that's ridiculous. Yes. <laughs> and, and I mean, absurdist humor is going to either work or not work. Like that's what it is. And it works for some people and it doesn't, we all have different points of where it works for us. And a lot of the stuff in this movie, I was like, oh, okay, now, now we're going to go to the circus and now we're going to, okay. And then you had like these. Okay. I'm so sorry. And I know that I'm a horrible stick in the mud, but you're standing there. The guy's got a gun. He's like, I'm going to rob this bank. You pick, Oh, Hey friend, pick up the gun. And then he's like, Oh, I guess I'll just help you rob this bank. Oh, I guess I'll just be part of this now. Oh, and then I, I know that you robbed, even though you didn't rob very much of the bank, your intent was armed robbery. Okay. But are there going to be consequences? No, go live on wall street. That's where you'll fit in. Let's, let's promote this. Let's celebrate this. And then let's use the money that you make there to help me out. And I just, Oh, no, no bad, bad. And there should be consequences for actions. Like, but but with tall tales, that's not usually how it works. This isn't a morality issue. Morality is not the question in tall tales, right? Right. Whereas I feel like fairy tales have morality. Yes. Tall tales do not. You're right. I, I know. <laughs> I know. You're right. And I can appreciate that and still be very bothered by that's the what the bank scene was is that it wasn't edward's place to judge what was happening it was his place that or his you know concept because the idea that it happened in texas right like what are the odds that we would both be in this same bank in texas at the same time mm -hmm. so i took that scene of supporting your friends like if you're in a situation you may not agree with what people in your life are doing but you do your best to support them pages and popcorn podcast does not endorse the robbing of banks i'm just going to make that very clear even if you are my best friend heather no uh robbing banks for you will not be assisting done okay i will i will make a note yes. do not ever ask kalia to rob a bank with me morality is a fluid thing i think <laughs> and <laughs> therefore you support your friends but i do have to say i think steve buscemi was a very good casting for yes that steve role. buscemi was great but again i'm sorry i, I know maybe i'm just too literal minded but the, the thing was that Steve Buscemi was the poet who was stuck in this place and he couldn't finish his poem and he was struggling and he was there and he was kind of okay with being there. Like his was a little complicated because that wasn't the town where people were stuck. That wasn't what Spectre in the movie was. It was like supposed to be something slightly different, but he still was there and then he wasn't there. And so they're like, okay, cool. He escaped from the brainwashing barefoot town, but now he's 
I had a run of bad luck, but now it's, he's going to be okay because he's playing, you know, on wall street, and then he becomes a millionaire. So now he's like super successful, but not as a poet. So, okay. I'm thinking like, I'm trying really hard to find the message here that doesn't make me hate everybody. And I think, I think if I'm being very generous, it is that you can start off your life one way and you're like, I'm going to be a poet or an artist or a whatever you decide. And then life gets complicated. Maybe that gets hard. Maybe you can't live up to that potential, but then you make a big change and you find some other thing that you're good at. And maybe it's the complete opposite of what you were good at. And then you become better and successful and you're okay. Cause at the end, Steve Buscemi, we see him, he's a happy, rich guy. He seems fine. He's got friends, blah, blah, blah. So, okay. Kind of as an artist person, I don't like it, but I can appreciate if that was supposed to be the lesson, but I'm not sure if that's supposed to be the lesson or if I'm just really reaching. Here's where I took it from is that how often is the story that you're stuck in something you hate doing, which tends to be corporate or blue collar forced to work in a coal mine. And then the story goes that then later in your life, you do what you love, right? You can leave that all behind you and become the artist. That's the typical script. And so I feel that this one, they flipped it and said, the town thought he was an amazing poet, right? This little, small, secluded town. And they had these big aspirations for him to go to the big city and be a world-renowned poet, right? Mm -hmm. The town wanted him to go to Paris. But he got stuck in the purgatory in the book, Purgatory Town, because that's not what he was intended to do, mm-hmm. right? And in the so book, he never got out. Correct. Yeah. And so, whereas Inspector, you know, obviously there had to be people from his life that got into the world. Mm-hmm. So him deciding to leave, but then being lost. Mm-hmm. And so I think it just flipped the script of, you know, those traditional roles. So you're questioning, you know, just because this is what you were intended to do doesn't mean it's what you'll end up being. Yeah. No. And that's a good lesson. I just don't like the crime part of it, but that's fine. You know what else I don't like? I don't, I don't like that. He's like, Oh, Carl, I'll take you to the big city and get you to an all you can eat buffet. And then he did not. Carl was in involuntary servitude with the circus, but then I guess got out at some point. And I know it's metaphorical. Okay. I can feel everybody rolling their eyes at me, but it just, it just made me sad. Carl was sad. Carl made me sad. (laughs) That that whole part made me sad. And the Dawn Price part made me very angry. And I understand that we have to have a foil, you know, we have to have somebody like this, you know, manufactured villain for Edward to work against, but literally all we saw Dawn do was look vaguely jealous And I'm sure he wasn't the only person in town who was vaguely jealous of golden boy Edward as he saved puppies from burning buildings and was the best at all the sports and blah, 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 blah. And then this poor Don, he's like, fine, I'm going to leave my little dinky town. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to have a girl. Okay. She says she's going to marry me. And then I show up one day and there's some other dude macking on her in a field of flowers and then Dawn gets nasty. Then he's like, she belongs to me because now, and it seemed like a turn. It seemed pretty mm. extreme. 
And it did not, I mean, we haven't given up, been given a lot of Don's character, but this seemed very extreme, very one note and very like over the top to make it so that Edward can be the good guy. You know, it's like, um, he's like a straw man of villainry, really. And it just, it bothers me because it, it felt like sloppiness, like lazy writing aspect. And that, you know, I liked that it was a more complicated issue in, in the book and it wasn't so slapdash. And then, and then not only do we have to just say he does in the book, that's it. Like he, he loses out on the, on the girl and then whatever in the movie, we have to continue to punish him by having him die young, die of a heart attack, die of a heart attack young on the toilet, which is like very undignified while reading a playboy that someone's going to find. And it just felt like freaking salt in the wound. I did not appreciate. Nope. Now, I don't know if you caught the line in the movie that he just had a bad ticker right mm -hmm. and so i think but it was brought on by this physical exertion of punching edward but i think hurried it along building, they were building it up that he just didn't have a good heart to begin with like his jealousy and i'm not saying i agree with this at all but the way it came across to me was that his his jealousy and his ownership of Sandra and you know that he just he wasn't a good-hearted soul right like that's what I felt they were going for with that well I don't uh, think they made that very obvious it was like but they didn't No. and so but it also like in every story of a hero right there's always a naysayer and I felt like they were trying to make him kind of the naysayer in the town of Ashton but again they didn't develop it enough. And they don't need it. it we didn't don't. need a I mean, naysayer. You don't have to have somebody who who hates you because you're good. That doesn't make you any better. Right. But I think it also was going to making us feel more for Edward, which he didn't need. No. He was already the town hero. We didn't need him to. And, and it's know. not like he interacted with Don. It wasn't like, you it know. It was always a side shot. Yeah, of Dawn looking like, very... oh, bummer. I wish I could have done this. Yeah, and so then to then have Edward steal his girl. Yeah, also... out, out, stalker-stealing girl. Like, let's... Oh, yeah, like, yeah. totally unnecessary amounts here. I think the book handled it a little better because in the book, she had been proposed to but hadn't said yes. Yes, exactly. And I and... feel that that would have been a better... Thing to do it's also said in the book that edward hung around her and she and was just himself didn't try to impress her was the thing right. all the other boys were trying to impress her edward didn't try to impress her he was just himself and she responded to that in the movie he was freaking trying to impress her sky writing like yeah. all of this and stuff then, did you notice that when he was helping jenny with her house he was not pursuing her he was just around her mm -hmm. so they like switched that because with the book with Jenny, he very much swooped in and saved her from the swamp, Ugh, right? Saved her from the swamp. I hated that part because it, it literally, she's, he says to her, I'm going to save you from the swamp. And she's like, no, cool. I'm fine. The very next chapter, she, he moves her into town and sets her up in a house and we don't ever see how he changed her mind or why she changed her mind. He just or, did. He just did. We're just, because he's just that good. Right. So I feel like they, they inappropriately switched that in the movie because yeah. it, I know that it was to show that with Jenny, it was 
well-intended but in the book it wasn't right you know and so I get why they did it for the film you know it, it yeah I get it but I, get it. I agree that his courtship of, of his wife was too much can I tell you something else that I didn't like <laughs> do it I'm not sure if this is a I don't like or if it's just one of those things that kind of took me out of it he's in the Korean War after okay so hold on he was born He's, he graduates from high school. He goes off into the world. He works at the circus for three years. Then he's going to be in the Korean war. Okay. So that's early fifties. So if we put him at like early twenties in the early fifties, that means he was born in the early thirties, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. Late twenties, early thirties, a white woman having a baby, a black doctor. Yeah delivering the the baby of the white lady but then pointing out that at that time it wasn't standard for the husbands to be in the birthing room nope i get that so i don't know if if that is a thing to bump on or not bump on but i don't feel like in the south in the early 30s the white women would have been cool with a black doctor helping them give birth like i just i feel like we weren't there yet um right and we should have been okay but we weren't so that is a kind of thing when, when stuff like that happens on screen, again, it takes me out and I'm like, but wait, and then, and then I bump and then, and then you start to see the ridiculousness of the little naked baby flying down the hallways. <laughs> you have to have a certain amount of buy-in to get into that ridiculous place. And if you have something like the race of the doctor, not jiving historically, personally, then I get distracted. And then I can't, relax into the absurdity of the rest of it unless I go the whole thing's just absurd but then Heather I'm sorry if the whole thing's just absurd then I don't fucking care about any of it (laughs) I love how much you think about things like that like those things are things that you notice right the average person isn't going to do that math in their head while watching the movie right and I think that's a big thing between a book versus a movie is in the movie we kind of get to that point where we just take it at face value and we don't ask those questions right so I think it was something and especially in the early 2000s I think we were finally starting to get beyond those typecasting roles of the doctor being an old weak white man right okay the book for diversity except that he's literally the only person of color except for the siamese fetish twins so they yeah i mean i I get that this is not a diverse this is no the movie's not diverse and but yes you're right i do i do have a tough time taking things at face value and and that whole the the siamese twins sexual fetish weird I, oh my God, you, you, dude. Okay. I can't even with the circus stuff too. So, I mean, I get where they were going with that, but yeah, I mean, circus tropes are bad enough and, and it's definitely a Tim Burton thing. Let's bring out all the quote unquote freak people. Huh? It's the fringe of society. Okay. Sure. 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 Yeah. I, and again, and I keep saying it wasn't in the book. The book did a fine job of having his wartime thing be, you can have a tall tale without going into Siamese tweens fetish stuff, right? Yeah. And and having him be rescued by the woman in the in the river multiple times, I thought was really nice. 
the movie has one really good part one good line about the women. And that is when Jenny is telling him and then she's like, I did this and this, and then I'm Jenny. And now I'm also Jen and I'm also the witch and I'm blah, blah, blah. And he's like, and the boy that the son is like, that doesn't make any logical sense. It's not old. Right. And she's like, it's not supposed to make sense. But also in your dad's stories, there was only two women. There's your mm-hmm. mom and everybody else. And then if you're like me, you're like, wait a minute, there's a woman in the water. Who was she? And then she's clearly the mom. She's got the same color hair as the mom. And again, at the very, very end, we see her in the water and the sun brings he her and, and she, and he goes, my lady in the river and the whole thing. And you're like, okay, this is great. Especially since like he met her early on and she was, you know, and he saved her and then, you know, all of this stuff, like it's, it's very, it ties in very well of with, with the mom and the, and the other women, but it doesn't, it, you can't think about it too long or it doesn't. Work. Right. But that's <laughs> all tall tales. That's that. You but can't... I liked that part. I liked the part with the woman with, with the, you know, the woman in the water, his, well, as and his I mom. Think, you know, it was nice in the movie that they included the daughter-in-law in the storyline. I think having her as an additional person that Ed is telling his stories to, I liked that. Because like we said, in the book, it was the father-son relationship and that was it, right? Whereas in the movie, it had the father and the wife. You saw how much they adored each other. I didn't mention it in my recap, but my one of my favorite parts of the movie was when the dad is in the tub <laughs> and the mom gets in and fully dressed and they snuggle yes. up in the water and it's like, aww. So- it was beautiful. It was something that I think is so relatable in a true love story that it's not all glamour it's not all fields of freaking daffodils right right like sometimes it's just downright simple raw emotion so i think that was a beautiful scene yeah i would have been i would have loved to see more of the of the wife and mother and if that meant taking out josephine i would have been that's a sacrifice i'd be willing to make needed that that feminine no, she was there as an incubator because then it's like, oh, she's pregnant and then uh, she's going to have a baby and then but there's a son shown. and blah, blah, blah. They could have, but they didn't. Because again, this movie does not trust us to have complicated thoughts in our heads. She couldn't have been about to be pregnant. She had to be seven months. She had to be already with a boy that we already know. Blah, 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 blah. Yes. Okay. Nope. So more mom, less wife. Sure, but like when she the scene where she asked if she could take his photo right so she leaves the room to get the camera and it epitomized the whole story because he hid his pain while she was in the room and as soon as she stepped out of the room he showed his pain Mm -hmm. and then as soon as she came back in he switched back right so it humanized him it showed that he really had been putting on this front and like showed that he'd been hiding his emotions yeah and that's a great scene i don't think we needed yeah i don't think it had to be her right but i'm just saying the addition of her scenes whether it had been the mom or her you know i think that those all went to showing that he truly did put up a front for his son whatever his motives were to do so yeah but it also was nice to show that even though the son grew up in what wouldn't normally be considered a loving two-parent household that he still was able to find you know well you know what i'm gonna push back at that because i feel like he did grow up in a loving two-parent now yes the dad was absent a lot and 
and he definitely is holding a grudge but we saw flashbacks of his dad telling him stories and tucking him in at night and like it you know it happen it just wasn't as much as he had wanted yeah and on to that i say tough titty kid like sometimes you don't get the exact parents that you think you want but the parents you have aren't as awful as you think that they are and i feel like that could have been a lesson like he could have been like you know what he was gone a lot because he was trying to provide for us you was know he, he though was he though I, because we don't know we don't know why the dad left all the time only that when he was home he was always ready to leave again in the book not in the movie in the movie right. we really didn't get that that's yeah so well, it was a difference i mean i feel like if they had put that aspect into the movie mm-hmm it would have made a little more sense that, you know, because otherwise, yeah, you do get that feeling that he was just trying to provide for his family. The son's anger seems a little misplaced. Yeah. It seemed more extreme than it needed to be. Right. Unless you've read the book. Right. And he's like, you know, you're like Santa Claus. And then I'm mad because I believed you for so long. And you know, you're a fake. And the dad's like, I've never been fake. I'm really me. And the real me is the guy who's going to tell you a crazy story and make, you know, tell you a joke. And there were a lot more jokes in the book in the, in the movie that was more about the stories. Some of the jokes in the book were freaking great. (laughs) I took notes and told them to my family and they (laughs) appreciated them. I say appreciate. I, I think I think half of that family <laughs> unit appreciated. Uh, <laughs> they definitely did show more of the dad's feeling in the movie, which made the end, I think, better because the son telling the dad the story at the end of his life, I thought was because, like you said in the book, we kind of inferred that the stroke killed him. Right. And the rest was the, the son telling the story. And then in the movie, they showed that. The movie made yeah. it more clear. And I appreciate that. I, I did. I liked the end. I liked him saying, I don't know how to start. And the dad starting the story and, you know, and, and he finishes it. I like the camera changes and the angles and we get to see it. And we know very clearly that it's a story and he's working through it as he's creating it with his dad. I did. I did really, really like that. I think it was well done because it was in a way not only him accepting his father's death, mm-hmm. but accepting that his father was who he was. Right. And he wasn't going to change at the end because I think so many people look for that reconciliation at the end of someone's life mm-hmm. and they don't get it. Yeah. And I had read in the notes that actually the producer and Tim Burton Tim and both, yeah, a whole bunch of people. They all lost their father. Recently. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and for Tim Burton, he had lost his mother and his father. And I'm wondering and how much of that. Helena was pregnant during the filming of this right. with, with Tim Burton's child. Right. So, yeah, so I they're... think that the, the extra added layer of feelings and tenderness between like Ed and Sandra in the movie, I think that a lot of that was affected by that. Just showing those human interactions and those moments. Right. Because again the moments supposedly aren't what we remember right but yet that's what makes a person and your relationship with a person is those moments Mm -hmm. so him carrying his father at the end was really powerful yeah definitely so here are some of my trivia Matthew McGrory, 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 Matthew McGrory, 
Carl. He sadly died at age 32 of congestive heart failure in 2005. So only a couple years after this movie came out. Okay. And then uh, let's see here. Uh, the filming was in Alabama and they tracked down Billy Reddit, one of the original banjo players from Deliverance was working as a restaurant in Georgia. He agreed to reprise his role in the Spectre vignette. So he, you can see him actually on the porch plucking a few notes from dueling banjos. <laughs> that is actually him. And Daniel Wallace, author of the book, makes a brief appearance as Sandra's economics teacher during the movie. So that's kind of fun. And then our, our Star Trek trivia, we have one little tiny, not so cool piece, and then one much bigger and better cool piece. The little one is that Missy Pyle was Mildred, who was one of the barefoot brainwashed town people. Anyways, she does a voice on Star Trek Lower Decks uh, she, in the Strange Energies episode coming up. So there you go. And then more importantly, and you may or may not have known this, Mr. Soggy Bottom from the, the circus part is played by a man named Deep Roy, who was born in 1949. He is 72 years old, still ticking along. He's an actor and a stuntman. He played the role of Kesner or Kinsner, depending on how you want to say it, in the 2009 Star Trek and 2012 Star Trek Into Darkness. He was Scotty's little friend with the big bluish greenish makeup he was also the oompa loompa in willy Wonka. yeah i'm getting to that he oh, okay. <laughs> um <laughs> again. yes yes let's see here he's also uh noted for playing max rebo band member droopy mccool so i thought that was interesting like soggy bottom and also droopy mccool he was an ewok he was a stunt for r2d2 and master yoda during the walking scenes He's a stand-in for the character of Yoda in two of the Star Wars films, uh, which is Empire Strikes Back and uh, Episode Six, Return of the Jedi. Um, and let's see here. He's also worked with Tim Burton multiple times, particularly his portrayal of all 165 Oompa Loompas in the 2005 Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And in the special features of Star Trek, he is shown doing the Oompa Loompa dances between takes. So... <laughs> pretty cool also of course our star wars connection is with ewan mcgregor and um we have a harry potter connection as well so that that's pretty cool all of your nerd cred right there okay so heather was this book worth your time was this movie worth your time I would say yes and yes. Like I said, the book, it it seems like it's going to be insubstantial because it's very short, but it really carries a lot. And like you said, it was just so well written. The amount of emotion and undertones and like you said, Easter eggs that aren't Easter eggs unless you know they're there was really appreciated. And with the movie, again, like you said, if you're not a Tim Burton fan, you're not going to watch the movie. Like not unless you're really invested um but if you are a tim burton fan i feel like it is one of his better yes i agree with you on the book i totally worth reading i mean it's less than 200 pages it is a fast read but it is a meaningful read and it i think benefits from being read multiple times uh maybe not right away maybe come back to it this is a this is a fairy tale gentle book that i think 
definitely stands the test of time and is very timeless, even though it puts us in a specific time and place. I think that it has universal truths and we can all kind of understand about the stories that we get of our parents and the stories that we tell to our children and living on in the stories and, and living on in reputation and what that means. The movie, I think, tries to make those same points. I don't think the movie makes the point as well as the book. I think it's trying so hard to be visually interesting, and it is very visually interesting, that I think a little bit of the charm of the book is lost because it feels like the movie is just a catalyst for Tim Burton to do some really, really cool looking special effects. And Ewan McGregor is great cannot fault the Scottish man doing a Southern accent. He did very well. <laughs> but very, very convincing. Very, very convincing. However, we are never out of the place of knowing that we're watching a movie. We're never really swept away because there's idiosyncrasies and there's weirdness. And we're very aware that we're being shown something special. And I think that that takes away from the specialness of what we're being shown, actually. There's a lot about truth versus fantasy and a point that I think it's made better in the book and I think almost is forgotten in the movie is that stories don't have to be epic to be important and you don't have to be the biggest and the best, the most beautiful and the most successful. I think that a lot of times we put the emphasis on those big moments, but those little moments are just as important, maybe even more so. And I think that we could all stand to remember that. So if you like Tim Burton movies and you want to watch this movie, great. If you somehow missed it and you really, you know, want to see Danny DeVito as a ringmaster, um, you know, and yet another circus thing. Sure. But I, I would say, honestly, I feel like your time would be better spent spending those two hours reading this book and maybe watching something else. That's my take. Obviously, a lot of people disagreed with me. This, this movie is very popular and that's fine. You can all enjoy it. I guess we should have probably done this in the, uh, the trivia. Did you know it was also made into a musical? Uh, I saw that, but I don't know anything about it. So. It was... In Chicago in 2013, Broadway in 2013, and 2017 in the West End. Well, there you go. I think this could have benefited from being a musical. Be the, the special effects would be a little bit more stripped down because they'd have to be. And so I think the emphasis might be back where I personally feel it should be, which is the interpersonal connections. And also we needed more of the mom in both of them. <laughs> so... Um, a couple of big lessons. We got the make your peace when you can. Uh, I did like the lesson that they had in the movie that they didn't mention in the book, though, which was that evil things sometimes just need a change of perspective or to be treated kindly. That's a really good lesson. So good for the wolf, although he did not take that lesson on when he went off to talk to Don Price in the very next scene, whatever. <laughs> la, 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 la. And uh, also the line that where he says, we were strangers that knew each other very well. Yes. I think that that was a good point of just because you have someone in your life doesn't mean you know them. So take the time to have those moments and know them. Mm -hmm. As much as they will let you. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Okay. Well, thank you, Heather. This was fun. Thank you for having me and letting me pick a fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like fantasy. Ugh, I'm glad this was it's a good fantasy to do. Listeners. 
feel free to send me an email and tell me while I'm all the ways in which I'm wrong about Tim Burton at pages and popcorn podcast at gmail.com. I know you're just itching to do it. Uh, <laughs> and uh, let us know if you've read this book and if you've seen this movie and whether or not you think our assessment is spot on or just way out there. Are we fishing for <laughs> morals and meanings that aren't there? Or did we get it? Hook, line, and sinker. Did we lure you in? Did we lure you in. That's right. <laughs> okay well i will sushi you later and no now i'm just really stretching here thank you so much heather this was fun thank you for being here i hope you had a good time i said of course okay and i'm gonna go ahead and stop have a wonderful day bye